John chapter 8, we will try to conclude this series this morning. Living liberated is our subject. Living liberated. You were liberated in order to live liberated. Jesus said in John chapter 8, verse 31, If you continue in my word, then are you my disciples indeed. And if you are my disciple, you will know the truth. And... The truth will make you free, liberated. That's what the word means, free. You'll be set free. It obviously implies that all men that are brought to Christ are bound in some way or in various ways. Hang-ups, strongholds in their lives, things that overcome them and overwhelm them and control them or defeat them. So all of us come to the Lord bound. We all need to be loose from something. And when you come to the Lord, God begins to expose all the darkness in our life with light. He begins to show us what the truth is about, well, your life. And shows you that you don't have to have this. This doesn't have to be. You don't have to have the problem. You don't have to keep falling prey to this thing. Jesus has set you free from that. And the more you begin to realize how free he made you, the more you can walk free. Because I'll tell you this morning, there are lots and lots of Christians who aren't free. They're still bound. They're still hung up by fears, uncertainties, and so forth. And the mission of ministry in the church is to make disciples by declaring the Word of God over and over and over again. Because, again, the truth is you shall know the truth. Not academically know about it, memorize it, and be able to answer questions when you're asked. But you shall know it as an experience. I know in whom I have believed. Not know about him, I know in whom I have believed. And I am convinced and persuaded that he is able. That kind of knowledge, a knowledge that exercises great importance in your life. You shall know the truth, and truth will make you free. In this way, we make disciples. The preacher can make a disciple out of nobody. A preacher can only declare what disciples do and what disciples are. It's up to that person. That's you and me. It's up to us to make the right choices, to make the right decisions, to take God at his word. But I think the word of God troubles people. Does it trouble you to be told you have to live the way the Bible says? Does that trouble any of you here? Do you find yourself overcome by adverse feelings? If we talked about wearing a head covering, as the Bible says, would that offend a lot of women? It obviously wouldn't offend all of them, but I think it would some because immediately they want to jump up and defend why they don't or or what. But... There are things that, like in the Sermon on the Mount, there are things that people hear there that they don't like to hear. And it shouldn't be like that because when you are in some way offended by what the Bible declares, it means that in that area there's a stronghold and you're bound somewhat, maybe varying degrees of being bound, but you're not totally free. If you cannot rejoice at the hearing of the word and as it comes in and have a heart to embrace it, then something prevents it. Then the thing that prevents it is that you're bound. Now, we've looked at several subjects about you got to keep your mind clear, watch your mouth, guard your faith and your companions. And last time we started on 
giving. Because if you can't give, you're not free. And a lot of people have problems with giving, preconceived ideas like that's all the church ever talks about. You know, that's mostly what we talk about here all the time. We talk about giving and trying to get as much out of you as we can. A lot of people think like that, and therefore they tend to have this preconceived idea that churches are just money grubbers. Or if there's somebody that has a need in the church, some look around and say, well, there's enough people here that's got more than I have to give and let them give. I mean, I don't have that kind of money. Or they look how well the church is doing, and they say, well, they don't need my money. And so they have this preconceived idea about giving that it's not really important, maybe not exactly necessary. It's not a thing you should be compelled to do because we have this way of thinking that's been corrupted by the world as to why people are giving or why they don't or why they shouldn't have to and all of that kind of stuff. Now, last time we said this. We said two things about giving. One is that God owns everything. Everything you have belongs to him, all your possessions. And when you die, when your time on this earth is terminated, you can take none of it with you. I tell you this, when you draw your last breath, you're out. I don't care how much you had and how shrewdly you were going to dispense it to your friends or your family, you don't know where it goes because you're gone. You can't take it with you. Solomon writes about things like this and said, you know, it's all vanity to try to accumulate all this and think you're in control of it. When you die, you're in control of nothing. It's now a face-off between you and God. And that's what really matters, and that's what counts. And, And anything on this earth that interfered with that was vanity. We have to learn how to give. And yet we work so hard to get. And we treasure what we buy with what we get And the idea of giving things away, giving things up, or letting go of things doesn't appeal to a lot of people. But you've got to remember, one, it all belongs to God. And secondly, the only right way to give is willingly, to give with a willing heart, to give because it's not that I have to, I want to. Remember the verse we saw in Exodus chapter 25 and verse 2? He says, speaking to the children of Israel that they bring me an offering of every man that giveth it willingly with his heart, you shall take my offering. That's the one that God wants. When he gave these people everything they had, when they left Egypt, they were wealthy people, very, very wealthy. The Israelites went through the Red Sea with multitudes of abundance. They had gold and silver in abundance. They had wearing apparel, all the things that God would want them to give some of it back. He gave them everything, and he tested his people in the wilderness just as he tests us. And he said, now that you have a lot, he said, I want you to take an offering from the people. An offering is something they give back. They give up something for something else. You take an offering from the people, but only from those that are willing to give it do I want it, because that's the Lord's offering. Jesus said in Matthew 10, he said, Freely you have received, freely give. The day you begin to hoard things up and to see everything as your own personal little treasure is the day you're going to find yourself in trouble spiritually. God has given us richly all things to enjoy. But you at the same time in the same verse that these things are spoken, you have to also be willing 
to let go of it because it wasn't yours in the first place. It was all his. Now, we spent most of last time talking about the tithe because when you start talking about giving in a church, you naturally think about the tithe. And the tithe, of course, was a tenth. And what a lot of people don't know is that there was a purpose or a design that God had for a tithe. Now, everybody in this room and anybody can give a tenth of your income or a tenth of your first fruits or a tenth of your whatever you got. I mean, anybody could do that. And if that was a New Testament principle that we are to abide by, then a lot of people would be in trouble. As I said in the first message, 80% of all the money that comes in a church comes from 20% of the people. But you might say 20% of the people have it to give, whereas the 80% don't. But the second part of that is that that other 20% comes from 30%, which means that 50% or half the church does not regularly give back to the Lord in appreciation and thanksgiving for what they have gotten that week. That's the mindset you have to have when it comes to giving. You're not giving to a church. You're not giving to a preacher. You're not giving to a system. You're giving to God. That's what the tithe was all about. Bring ye the tithe, Malachi 3 said, bring ye all the tithe into the storehouse. Then he goes on to say other things, prove me and see if I won't open the windows of heaven. And the reason you're not blessed, he said, is because you're robbing me. You're robbing me with your tithes and your offerings. Offerings would probably refer to the sacrifices that you bring or lack of bringing them or not being careful about repentance. And you're robbing God because those animals that you brought for those sacrifices had a purpose in being brought too. They were the very best you could bring, the best animals you could find. All offerings were not burnt offerings. Many of those offerings were heaved unto the Lord and then they were given to the priest because that was the purpose of the tithe. When God led his people in the promised land, all those tribes got a portion of the land that the Canaanites and the Havites and all those people, all that land that they had from the mountains to the plains and the valleys, already plowed and tilled and wells were dug. God gave all of that to his people. The wealth of the sinner was truly laid up for the just. And they went in, and they each had a section of land, and they had borders, except for one tribe, and they were called the Levites. And the Levites got nothing, that is, in terms of land. But here's what the Bible says about Levites in Numbers 18 and verse 20. And the Lord spake unto Aaron, Thou shalt have no inheritance in their land, neither shalt thou have any part among them. God said, I am thy part and thy inheritance among the children of Israel. And behold, I have given the children of Levi all the tenth in Israel for an inheritance, for their service which they serve, even the service of the tabernacle of the congregation. So the purpose of the tenth was to support the tribe that had no inheritance. They had no fields they could harvest. They made no money that way. They had no vines for the wine and no olive for the oil. They had nothing they could do for enterprise. God said, I am your inheritance. Your mission in this earth is to stand between the people and me, to represent me to the people. I am your inheritance. 
all the people, when you do what you're supposed to do and they honor you or they honor me, all of their tenth I will give to you. And in this way you will live and have abundance. Verse 24 of Numbers 18 said this. He said, But the tithe of the children of Israel, which they offer as a heave offering unto the Lord, I have given to the Levites to inherit. Therefore I have said to them, Among the children of Israel, they shall have no inheritance. So the purpose of a tithe, the purpose of of the tenth, was to support the Levitical priesthood, the Levitical tribe, their families. In fact, there was so much when it came in, when it's supposed to, they had to build a storehouse. They had to build a big place to put all of this stuff. And then they appointed certain of the Levitical priesthood to dispense it to whoever had the needs. That's where they got all their stuff. And they really did get the best. I mean, they had the very best that could be brought. The first fruits, the best of the animals, the best of the flock. And God gave that to his people. Now, as long as the people did that, the nation did well. In other words, as long as they took care of the priest, they did well. And when they didn't, they didn't do well. Like in Nehemiah chapter 13, when they were beginning to restore the worship in the temple that hadn't been there, the priests no longer were supported. They didn't have any land. They had to go out and be hired You had to hire the priest to work in the fields. That's not their job. That's not what they're called to do. They're not too good to do that. That's just not what they had time to do. There was a greater call on their life, but they had to support their families. So they went to work in the fields. They couldn't be ministering about the temple, keeping it clean or keeping it prepared, getting wood, water, cleansing, all that gore had to be cleansed. People, the priests did that. But they couldn't because they had to work. The people weren't giving anymore. And boy, Nehemiah, he said a whole lot about that in Numbers chapter 13, 10 through 12. He said, the house of God is forsaken. Can you imagine? Yet they still had some sort of religious service. They still had some semblance of something. But he said, the house of God, in spite of what you think, the house of God is forsaken. When the people saw that, they began to bring in. They began to do what they should have been doing, but they got away from it because we can. They began to bring in all their first fruits, and then the Levites could come back, and there was restoration of worship in the church because the people began to do what they should. And then the nation was blessed. God saw to it that their crops did well. The money came in. The market was always good. They were blessed going in, blessed coming out. Whatever they put their hand to was blessed. And at worst, when you don't do what you should do like that way, it's a curse. Malachi 3, you're under a curse, a curse which simply can be broken by giving to God what belongs to him. That's the way you break that particular curse. That's not the only curse in the Bible. But he said, you're under a curse. Your prayers aren't getting answered. You're not doing well in your business. You're not doing well at all. You're not happy. You're not at peace. You've got God as your God, and you're still not doing good. And they said, why? He said, because you're robbing me. You're not giving. And when people can't give, I'll guarantee you, when people can't give, they talk themselves into not being able to give. I don't make enough. I'm too deep into debt with this and that, and therefore I can't give. Now, that is sinful. And they rule God out, and therefore they make things worse, and it doesn't do better. It gets worse. Let me tell you something. Anybody can give. 
You say, well, I don't make, you could put one nickel a week in an offering container. There's not a person in this room, including the little kids, that could not put a nickel every week. Now, if they open that box next week and there's about 150 nickels in there, I'll know that something's wrong. I'm just saying that everybody can give. The kid who mows grass in the summer and makes $50 a week can give. And if he doesn't give, he is being untaught. He is misinformed. God deserves a portion of whatever you have. And when you give it back to him, it's one way that you show to him your appreciation. Somebody else may get it, but you gave it as unto the Lord. And God will bless you for that. Because if you rob God... You're depriving God of what is rightfully his. And that's where the curse comes from. If you're going to rob God, then God will shut the doors of heaven. But he said, and I'll end the message today with this, prove me. Prove me. Test me. See if I won't open the windows of heaven for you. Somebody prophesied that to me years ago. Prophesied, oh, I saw the windows of heaven. He said, oh, man. He said, oh, the Lord's going to bless you. And I'm sitting there broke. He is. <laughs> That's what he said. I thought, well, it's nice to be prophesied to. But I can say to you today that God is the one who opens the windows of heaven. It is God's idea to pour out a blessing, not upon certain ones that he likes more than others, but he said to those who will do what he said. And to him that hath shall be given more, and he shall have abundance. Remember that? Give the one talent to the guy that's got the ten. But, Lord, he's already got ten. That's the way we think. He's already got ten. He said, give it to him. For to him that hath shall more be given. Because the way he got it was not trying to finagle it out of people. Some dime store story about, oh, y'all got. He got it because he was sincere in his work. He worked hard. He did his eight hours a day. He was thoughtful. And he said, I bless him for that. Now, today, what about the New Testament and the tithe? Does the tithe that was given in the Old Testament as a standard for giving, it was more than one tithe, but we usually just think of one tithe, but is the tithe today in the New Testament church still the standard? Most all Christians think so. Most all Christians think that if you give a tenth or a tithe, you've given the standard. That's what God goes by. He wants a tenth from all of us. Well, is that true? Can we find the same thing spoken of in the New Testament? You see, things are complicated now. We went a theocracy in the Old Testament where God was training his people to relate to him and trust him and look to him for all their needs and show them that he would bless them. Now, we've gone from that in the Old Testament through the years into this time that we're in, and the church is now a business. It is an organization. It can't be refuted. When you file that particular form with the government to be a tax-exempt corporation, you become an organization. You function like a business. You're required to have oversight of your money and expenses and somebody, and that way everybody can get a deduction for their giving if you do that. And so the church has gone that way because the thinking is, if everybody can get an IRS deduction on their giving, then maybe they will give more because they know they can deduct it at the end of the year. 
Now, if that's what you have to have to give, it would be better if you put it somewhere else. Amen. I still remember the man in 1975 was going to write me a check. I'm so blessed and blah, 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 blah. Okay. Who do I write this out to? I said, Tom Hamilton. He said, no, what's the name of your organization? Because most everybody he knew as a businessman, most every ministry had that. You give to me, you get it back. And I said, well, just Tom Hamilton. I don't have any organization. He said, you're not. I said, no. And he folded his checkbook up. Fine. I owe him nothing. He owes me nothing. I'm just saying that his motive for giving was not good. He was giving because he was going to get it back. His way by the government. And the church is set up that way. Church has checks and balances. It's a democratic process today. You have people that do this and do that. And I think it's necessary in any body of believers to have some kind of an oversight. I think every pastor should obligate himself to the scrutiny of various ones, certain ones, for the well-being of the church. I did that voluntarily because I think that's okay. And I them. If I don't like what they're doing, I'll tell them. But we want to make it proper and decent and in order, but I don't want it to be worldly. But when you complicate it with worldly things and you begin to rule out some other things. You see, we don't have a priesthood today like in the Old Testament. We don't have a Levitical tribe, not in Shelbyville. I haven't seen one. We don't have storehouses. We haven't had to build a pole barn yet to put everything in that you give, nor is that necessary because you did that because of a tribe. We don't have any sacrifices. Nobody brings a dead animal in here and said, here's your blessing. We don't do that today. There's no way we would offer that up to God. Those things were all types and shadows. They've all been fulfilled. We're supposed to see something of Christ and the redemptive processes portrayed in the Old Testament fulfilled in the New. And all of those things were pictures of things to come. So what does that do to the tithe? What happened to the tithe? Well, here's what I think. I think today in Ephesians chapter 4 and verse 8, God gave gifts to the church. Talking about Jesus in Ephesians 4 said, He that ascended up into heaven was he first that descended in the lower parts of the earth. And then when he ascended, he gave gifts unto men. Now, what are gifts? Well, he gave a turkey over here and didn't know. These gifts are not charisma gifts here. These are doma. There are gifts, in this sense, gifts as men. Gifts like one of us. And he names them in apostles, prophets, evangelists, pastors, and teachers. And he said these ministry gifts were specially anointed people just like you. They're not better than you. They're really not any different than you are. I can speak for myself. We live the same way, eat the same food, do the same things, except that I preach and you listen. That's the big difference between us. I assume that you're here because of that. I'm assuming that people come here because they want to hear the word. Well, now, don't shout me down if I said it wrong. I'm assuming that. Unless you came here because there's nice seats to sit in for an hour and 12 minutes. I think you're probably here for spiritual reasons. 
I'm assuming that everybody here is here for a spiritual reason. I am. I'm here for a spiritual reason. I believe I have a job to do that was given to me by the Lord. I still don't think I'm fit for it. From my own personal evaluation, I think God could have gotten somebody better and all of that. But it's a humbling thing to do what I'm doing, but I'm willing to do it. And I'm willing to do it as far as I know for the right reason. I believe you're here for the right reasons. I really do. Some of you can't help it. You were born here. But you stick around. You'll be glad you're here. You really will. So God put the gifts in the church, men. Anybody can preach a sermon, but as you know and I know, not everybody does it effectively. Some of the driest people I ever heard, one of the first sermons I ever heard from Hobart Freeman, I thought, ugh. A poor soul. Then I like those shouting, joke telling ones. I thought they, you know, they were funny. They made me laugh. I don't know what they said, but I laughed. And then I began to listen as I grew up, and I began to realize that everybody that God calls is not the same. They have different personalities. They have different techniques or ways, different kind of deliveries. Some do it this way and some do it that way. The evangelist, he gets all emotional and excited, and he has a great passion to declare the gospel of salvation to lost souls and to bring in the harvest, and, and he puts his heart into it. The prophet is somewhat secluded. He's one who hears from God, and God speaks to the church through him. Then there's the apostle who's given a multitude of gifts and callings, and he can do things probably most all the gifts of the Spirit will find their way through him. And then there's a pastor-teacher, the dullest of all of my guests, where you're located in one place, you don't get the excitement of a new congregation every week, but you have one congregation of people, and the mission is to make disciples. Same group every week, twice a week. You can't preach the same sermon every week. They get on to that. <laughs> Maybe every five years you can. They won't catch you there. But it's a labor of love, and the Bible calls it a labor. Well, that goes with the gifting. And if the gifting is proper, it's not for money. In fact, turn to Philippians chapter 4. I'm going to say this before I say anything else, because I want you to see this, about giving. Now, I know this, that what I'm about to say here in a few minutes, because I'm saying what I'm saying now about being a gift, and I, again, I don't see myself as any great gift. I don't. Sometimes I wonder. But in spite of that, it has worked. God has honored what I'm doing. And I praise the Lord for that. But if I don't teach on this subject, then I have not declared the whole counsel of God. Yet in teaching on this subject, some of the things you say will be directed back towards you, and people can get the wrong message about that. But if you don't give and learn to give, you will not be blessed. I don't care who you give it to. You will not be blessed if you can't give. Now, here's what Paul said in Philippians chapter 4, verse 10. But I rejoice in the Lord greatly that now at the last your care of me has flourished again, wherein you were careful, but you lacked opportunity. Now, you were concerned about me and wanted to help me, but you could not. Now, I, I praise God for that, he said. And verse 11, not that I speak in respect of want, for I have learned that whatsoever state I'm in, therewith to be content. 
I know how both to be abased and I know how to abound. And in all things, I'm instructed both to be full and to be hungry, both to abound and to suffer need. I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me. Now, he's talking here about his walk with the Lord is not based on getting people to give to him, begging for money. He said, I can be full, I can be broke, I can be hungry, I can be suffering, but I can do all things through Christ, and I know how to abound. However, verse 14, notwithstanding, you have well done that you did communicate with my affliction. That is, they shared with him in his trouble he was going through. Now, you Philippians know also that in the beginning of the gospel, when I departed from Macedonia, no church communicated with me as concerning giving and receiving. But you only. Now, giving and receiving is what communicating is about. No church supported me or helped me in what I'm doing. It goes on. Verse 16, except you all. For even in Thessalonica, you sent once and again into my necessity. You gave to me. You took up a collection and you gave it to me. Verse 17, here's what I want you to understand. Not because I desire a gift, but I desire fruit that may abound to your account, that you do well. I know myself, I have learned how to give. I know the joy of it. I know the benefits of it, and I want you to know the same thing. I really do. This is one area that I have learned to be free in, and I want everybody to have the same freedom because I know the benefits that you reap when you do that. Now, having said that, I want you to turn to Galatians chapter 6 and verse 6. What about the tithe? What about these gifts that God gave the church? Well, we don't have the tithe today, but we still have a ministry. It's not a Levitical priesthood. It's a ministry given by God the same as he gave the Levites in the Old Testament. He gives apostles, prophets, evangelists, pastors, and teachers in the New Testament. And we assemble before them because, I'm assuming, because from them we get the word of God from their mouth. We seek them out, as Malachi said. The man of God should be sought out for the word of God is in his mouth. And you want to hear that. So we come. And this is what he said, some of the few verses I've selected here about giving. Galatians chapter 6 and verse 6. Let him that is taught in the word communicate unto him that teaches in all good things. Now, communicate means to share, impart, or to give. And again, this is not easy for me to teach on because I'm a receiver and you're the giver. But I've already said in Philippians 4 what I want you to know, that it's not your gifts that I want. It's your fruit that's going to abound to your account. So he said, let him that is taught in the word share with him that teaches in all good things. If you don't, verse 7, be not deceived. God is not mocked. Whatever you sow, you're going to reap. For he that sows to his flesh, that is for himself, shall reap corruption. He'll corrupt himself with what he's blessed with. But he that sows to the Spirit shall of the Spirit reap life everlasting. Verse 9, And let us not be weary in well-doing, for in due season we shall reap if we faint not. Now, therefore, as we have opportunity, occasion, let us do good unto all men, especially them who are the household of faith. 
as we have an opportunity, as an occasion, let us do good. Good means beneficial, be beneficial to all of those in the household of faith. That's an opportunity that we have. It's one of the things that God tells us to do. And he never mentions a tithe or a tenth. He simply says, as you have opportunity, do good. Communicate. He doesn't tell you how much. Because in the New Testament, you're going to determine how much. It's up to you. For example, turn to 1 Corinthians 9 and verse 7. Now, here's the Apostle Paul. He was bold. I praise God for him. He's talking about himself here and his relationship to that church and their lack of concern for his needs. And he's even goes so far to say, I have a right to what you've got. I've been sent to you. You've been brought out of darkness. You're liberated now. I'm laboring in the word. In fact, I'm having to build tents. Verse 7, who goeth a warfare at any time at his own charges? Who plants a vineyard and doesn't eat of the fruit thereof? Or who feeds a flock and eateth not the milk of the flock? Now, say I these as a man, or does the law say the same thing? Verse 9, for it is written in the law of Moses, Thou shalt not muzzle the mouth of the ox that treadeth out the corn. Now, would that be like maybe a salary? Now, hold on. Don't say anything. If I was on a salary, if I put myself to that to somewhat be a hireling, you hire me for a certain amount, that would mean that if you came here today, let's say you were really blessed by something. Some way or another, you just got ministered to, and five people did, and five people put $1,000 each in the offering container for the preacher. But if it goes into the treasury, and somebody who's elected by the church to be the treasurer says, oh, no, oh, no, that ain't yours, that's ours. You get a little bit of it. Now, would that have anything to do with muzzling an ox? Okay, now that's what the Bible said. You shall not muzzle out the ox while he is treading out the corn. And he says, Doth God take care for the oxen? Or, verse 10, saith he it altogether for our sakes. In the New Testament, for our sakes, no doubt, this is written, that he that ploweth should plow in hope, and he that thresheth in hope should be partaker of his hope. Would that mean, if I come here today that I would expect some sort of an offering. If I don't get it, I'll be here next week. Might be in a bad mood, but I'll be here next week. No, 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 no. It just simply means that the man who is plowing the field should expect a crop, that he shouldn't go to war and pay for his own uniform and his gun. Listen to what he goes on to say. Verse 11, If we have sown unto you spiritual things... Is it a great thing if we reap your carnal things? What's carnal things? Your ugly attitudes? No. Carnal here means money, your resources. If we sow to you something spiritual, is it wrong for us to reap what you give or to expect it? What if the anointing was good enough that there were 10,000 people here this morning? Let's make it 5,000. What if 5,000 people, all of them were blessed one morning and gave $100 a piece? That's a lot of money, isn't it? 
obviously. How many people would begin to say, well, I ain't giving no more. Look how much he's already got. Is it wrong to have a lot? It's wrong for a lot to have you. Is it wrong for you to have a lot? Used to think of Brother Freeman up there, you know, a couple thousand people. That's a pretty good-sized crowd. A pretty good-sized crowd of blessed people who were probably blessed because they acted on the Word. Many of them, I would imagine, were very generous. What kind of an offering would you get at 2,000 people a week on a Sunday? That's not counting the other night. And if you sow thousands of tapes every month at $3 a piece or books by the truckloads every month, how much is all of that? Is it wrong to have that much? Why would anybody have so much? Is it not the anointing that has attracted people to the Word? It's not a man's ability. It's what God does through the man that people got blessed by hearing it, and they want to partake in it and share. It's not wrong, folks. But if the money corrupts you, then it's your problem, not the people that gave us problem. Amen. It'd be tough to have a million and a half dollars in the bank. Say, would it? It probably could be because you might start thinking differently than you think. I can think pretty good right now. If I had a million and a half dollars in the bank, where all am I going to go this month? What am I going to buy tomorrow? Well, anyway, let me go back to 1 Corinthians 11. Verse 12, if others be partakers of this power over you, are we not rather? Nevertheless, we have not used this power, but suffer all things, lest we should hinder the gospel. Listen, verse 13, do you not know that they which minister about holy things live of the things at the temple that was a priest? That's all they had. And they which wait at the altar are partakers with the altar. They get what's on the altar. Even so. Even so, in the New Testament, even so, the Lord hath ordained that they which preach the gospel should live of the gospel. There's really no time to do other things. This is what you're called to do. I heard Brother Freeman say years ago that if you can do anything else, don't preach. And God knows I try to do other things, and I couldn't. Really couldn't. And that's one of the ways that I knew that this is what I'm supposed to do. I couldn't do it as well as I'd like to do it, but I did it. And I know this, that in 1 Corinthians chapter 9, maybe as hard as it is for me to say this, it says that you folks, if the anointing that God gives me causes you to get your eyes opened, and if you give, is it wrong for me to receive what you give? It doesn't go into a storehouse. It doesn't go into a treasury. It will go to him. That's the way the New Testament does it. Look in 1 Timothy chapter 5 and verse 17. 1 Timothy chapter 5 and verse 17. Let the elders that rule well. Now rule means to stand in front or to stand before. It's a little Greek word which doesn't mean to intimidate or to use force, but it simply means to stand before representing the Lord to the people and as the one God sent. That the elders that rule well be counted worthy of double honor, especially they who labor in the word and doctrine. For the scripture says, and this is the second time you've heard it today, thou shalt not muzzle the ox that treadeth out the corn. The laborer is worthy of his hire. Those were sayings in the Old Testament. And if 
God chooses to give a lot to somebody, it's okay. I have known many men in my life who I thought had a good delivery from the pulpit, knew the word well, and they went out to preach. I thought, you know, they do as good as most anybody else I've seen, but none of it worked. I can think of two or three that knew well what to say, knew well how to do things, even pastor churches. In one church, they asked the guy to leave. We don't get anything out of what you're saying. And the other one, just everybody left. Nobody came back. They just quit coming. Now, if God anoints you in some way, even if you were somebody as well as I, and yet the word that God gives you does enhance your life, motivate you, convict you, or in some way bless you spiritually, then is it wrong if the one who taught is the one who receives your thanksgiving? Now, that's the New Testament way. And again, it doesn't mention the tithe. It doesn't mention a tenth. It doesn't say that at all. So how much do we give then? What does the Bible tell us that we should consider when it comes to giving? Some of you might say, well, I made $1,200 last week. Am I supposed to give $120? Or how am I supposed to think as a New Testament believer in light of what you just said? What is my responsibility? Turn to 2 Corinthians, and I'll answer that. 2 Corinthians chapter 9. You've been in 1 Corinthians 9. I'll go to 2 Corinthians 9. In 2 Corinthians 8 and 9, Paul talks about giving. Boy, he's bold. But 2 Corinthians 9, I'm going to quote him. In verse 6, But this I say, he which soweth sparingly. That's sort of a word for stingily. How do you like that word? That's a southern word. you got to know that. He that giveth not so much shall reap not so much. Does your Bible say sparingly? He that soweth sparingly shall reap sparingly. You don't put much out, not much will come in. You plant three rows of corn, you reap three rows of corn. You plant eight rows of corn, you get eight rows of corn. You make that decision. You make that decision. And he which soweth bountifully shall also reap bountifully. Now he's talking about them giving. Now look at verse 7. Every man as he purposeth in his heart. Purposeth means to approve of or to be willing. Every man as he is willing in his heart, so let him give. <clears throat> Not grudgingly or of necessity. For God loves what? And that doesn't mean when you walk by an offering container or whatever you put your offering that you just start bursting out into loud, joyful noise. <laughs> You know I mean? I've heard people like that. It means to be cheerful. You should have hilarious when you give. <laughs> people think we need deliverance. We did that. It is a blessing to give because it was a blessing to get. We got $1,200 last week because our bodies are healthy. Our talents are good. Somebody out there approved of it and were willing to use you to advance their cause and pay you well for it. Therefore, you were blessed. Now, in turn, as a Christian, you should be a blessing to the Lord. Thanksgiving. How much? He doesn't say tithe. He says, as he purposes, as he declares, as he thinks about in his heart. Let me read another translation. 
It's one of these modern translations. But listen to this. Each of you must make up your own mind about how much to give. Isn't that interesting? Each of you must make up your own mind about how much to give. But don't feel sorry that you must give and don't feel that you are forced to give. God loves people who love to give. Drudgingly means I don't want to. I don't want to give. Look how much, and they've got, he's got this, and he, now he's got another pair of shoes, a new suit, and another car. See, a lot of people think like that. Their giving is based on who do they think needs it. It's need-based giving. And Christian giving is never need-based giving except your need to give unto the Lord. You don't give because somebody has a lot. You don't give because he has nothing. You give as unto the Lord, and it is God who will deal with that person. And if he blesses them a lot, as far as I'm concerned, even though I've seen a thousand corruptions, I've seen a lot of rich preachers just totally corrupt themselves. Just watch one evening a certain two or three preachers at the end of their TV broadcast, the last five minutes is all about giving. Now, I've got here for you tonight, and here it comes. I've got something that needs to be in every home in America. This is a book that God gave me to write. Now, it's going to be yours. But now, now listen. And you go through that commercial, and you get this book for $9. You get it at the flea market next year for 50 cents. And you pay all that money for a book that tells you what you've already heard. I don't think that's the way God expected us to deal with his word and try to get people to give. I don't think it's like that at all. I think you give because it's in your heart to give, not because somebody pulls it out of you or because somebody is laying a sob story on you and if you don't help. A millionaire is telling God's going to kill me if you all don't give me $7 million. Got two houses, two airplanes, and begging for money. Something's wrong. I mean, I don't want to say, well, you need to just go ahead and die. I wouldn't do that. But I'm just saying there's something wrong about your appeal to people's resources for something that's not even God's will. To build a medical hospital when God says, I'm the Lord that heals you? And people buy into that? Well, that's what they believe in their heart, I suppose. In this particular chapter here, he said in verse 7, Let every man give as he purposeth in his heart. He didn't say it had to be a tenth. It might be a twentieth. I don't know what it might be. i got my own to deal with. you got your own. This is very personal between us and God. One of the things I like about giving here is that you have to find the box. And you walk by there, nobody knows what you put in it. Or take out of it. Nobody knows. It's between you and God. When they pass a bucket or a pan across the aisle and you see somebody putting money in it, if you just pass on the next guy, somebody you thinking, well, he didn't put anything in there. So you give grudgingly. I put your dollar in there. No, sir, you get to do this secretly. And you put cash in there, who knows who it was. I don't have anybody's feet to wash next week. It's something between a man or a woman and God. And God is the one who, when you give in secret, as the Sermon on the Mount says, he'll reward you openly. Others will see it, and you'll be blessed. 
Look at Luke 6.38. It gets better. I mean, it's pretty good now, but it gets really better here. Luke 6.38. And we're still asking the question, how much do we give? We haven't said yet. Except as he purposeth in his heart. Verse 38. Give and it shall. Give and it shall be given unto you. I've shared this before. You probably didn't get it, but I make it a point in a different ways and opportunities to give. Because I know if I give, according to this promise, God will bless me back. That's not why I'm giving. I give because people have needs. People are hurting or there's something very deserving of support. Some things in Israel. It's not like they need or broke, but it's, it'd be something good. I think it's important for me to give because if I don't give, who's going to give it back to me? You're the ones that support me, folks. The clothes I'm wearing, you bought them. Thank you. <laughs> the car I drive, you all bought it. Maybe her daddy bought it, but I mean, uh, the food I eat, thank you. What I have, my house is full of stuff that you all bought. You did it. The freedom I have to go to Alaska on a trip or Israel next year, you did it. So I want to thank you for that. But one of the principles that works here is that if I make it a point to be a giver myself, God's going to bless you. Because he said, good measure, pressed down, pretty picture, good measure, pressed down and shaken together, shall who give to me? Shall men give to your bosom? Who will give it? Nobody's going to walk in off the streets. No Hollywood sports figure, great person ever walked in here and said, Tom Hamilton, yes, here's, I just want to give. The people that support me aren't people that we don't know. They're you. You know why some of you are blessed? Because God is good. Because God is good. We should still go back to the days, some of you that have been here for 100 years, when everybody was struggling. We had enough, but we didn't have much. All the good jobs the heathen had, we prayed that God would give the jobs the heathen had to us and give him another job that we can't take. Now listen, here we are 30 years later. Look back 30 years and tell me you just barely made it. We have been blessed and we need to know it. Me, I do. I'm blessed more than all of you are. And I thank you for that. But I thank God more than I thank you. Because this is the way I deal with God. It's the way you deal with God. It's the way God deals with me. It's the way I deal with you. He said, good measure, pressed down, shaken together, shall men give into your bosom. Why will they give to you? Go back to the very beginning of the verse. 638, what's the first word? Give and it shall be. Before the it shall be given back, first of all, there must be you doing the giving. And it may take a while before the giving back comes. But you take the first step. It's a step of faith. God said, prove me now, didn't he? Prove me. See if it won't work. See if I won't open the windows of heaven for you. Prove me. Give, and it will be given unto you. And I'm not talking about giving to me. There's a lot of other places you can give. There's needs, and we'll get to that hopefully before we get done here. But giving is a part of it. Good measure, shaken down, pressed together, running over, shall men give unto your bosom. So how much you give 
depends on how much you want to get. We are not limited or restrained by a tithe. We're not. Any more than the only attendance you need to make every week is on Sunday morning. Who said that? Church? Religion? A called assembly is when the assembly meets. That's twice a week here. And then the other thing that comes up, we're just trying to follow the Lord and do what he wants us to do. How much you give depends on how much you want to give, or how much you give depends on how much you believe God wants you to give. Maybe more this week, maybe more next week, maybe less this week, maybe less next I don't know. That's between you and God. It is none of my business. It is nobody else's business. It's between you and God. How much you give. The money in your pocket belongs to you. You're in sole possession of it, and it's yours. And what you do with it with regards to God, not me, but with regards to God, between you and God and what's in your heart. And you should know here, before you do anything now, that if it goes in the box, it goes to me. We pay bills, buy chairs, paint and fix and give away cars and stuff as a part of our ministry here. Now, I do that because I'm glad to do that. I do it because you put the money in there anyway, in the first place, checks or cash, whatever it is. So what I'm saying this morning is this. Giving is a way of liberating yourself from the bondage of being stingy and tight. When you let something go, you may, oh, no, don't give like that. God loves what kind of a giver? He loves a cheerful giver. In 2 Corinthians 8 and verse 12, he said, For if there is first a willing mind, it is accepted to that a man hath, and not according to that he hath not. A widow gave two mites a half of a penny. Jesus said she gave more than the rich did. So you see, it's not this morning the amount of money that you're giving as much as it is your reason for doing it. It may include a figure that God will put in your heart and mind for the missions overseas, for your friend down the road who needs help, or that person in the church who's struggling and needs some help, you're giving. Praise God for that. Somebody's going to benefit from that because you've been taught that way. Deuteronomy 16, verse 17, it says, Every man shall give as he is able. That was in the Old Testament. According to the blessing of the Lord thy God, which he hath given thee. Probably a reference to offerings, because the tithe was a legal tithe. But we are all able. We're all blessed. We can be blessed. We should be blessed. God is showing us how, in one way, that we can be blessed. But giving to the ministry or these gifts is not the only one. Let me share with you just a few more, and then we'll close. How about gifts of charity, love offerings? Love offerings. How many times have we tried to help somebody who was in great need? I can tell you this. There have been times that we have sent money on missionary trips with the guys that go, and there's been $2,000 given by you folks on a Wednesday night. I didn't think anybody on a Wednesday night would have $2,000. But the generosity that I have seen of you folks here that I've experienced, and I mean, I know, in helping others is just wonderful. In the days of the building fund, when we were at poor old Lonely Box, in the building fund, it was not a problem for sometimes with two or $3,000 a week or three or $4,000 a month to come in there. Because of people's generosity, God knows all. He, records are kept. 
you did that because you gave it as unto the Lord, and God will bless you for that. Just because if we don't have a new building yet doesn't mean your money's in vain because we're not done. We're not through yet. But the word alms pops up in the New Testament, the Sermon on the Mount, giving of alms, how you give it, how you don't give it. Alms, A-L-M-S, alms are charitable donations. It's like a love offering, something that you give money or goods to the poor or the suffering or the needy or to support something that is a good thing. You give money. It's like giving an alm for it. It's a good thing to do that. Remember this about giving and love offerings. Jesus himself was teaching, and he said, As you have done this unto the least of these, my brethren, you have done it unto me. That needy person that you really bore your heart, oh, God, they need a wash machine. I'll buy it. No, I'll let two or three of you buy it. No, I'll, you just have a heart to really want to relieve people of suffering because you don't suffer like that anymore. You've been delivered, and you want them to be delivered too. You want them to enjoy what they could enjoy that you've enjoyed. So these are love offerings, and God knows that you give. He's keeping record of all of this. He's taking care of it. And finally this morning, how about giving to the poor? Because that would include what we just said. But what about specifically the poor? Follow me briefly in the book of Proverbs. If you'll go back to Proverbs 19, 22 and 28. Proverbs 19 and verse 17, he that hath pity upon the poor, pity is a word you could use for mercy, feeling mercy towards, a desire to relieve the affliction of the poor. Notice this, lendeth unto the Lord, and that which he hath given will he pay him again. Proverbs 19 and 17. How would you like to lend the Lord? I guarantee you this, he'll pay you back on time and probably with interest. All because you look at a poor man and you know that were not for the grace of God, there am I. And not that they're living right or making good choices. He didn't say that. They're just poor. He said, you that give to the poor, you're lending to the Lord, and God will pay back that which you gave to you. Chapter 22 and verse 9. He that hath a bountiful, that means generous, he that hath a bountiful eye shall be blessed, for he giveth of his bread to the poor. You want to be blessed? Give to the poor. Don't go out and look for a poor man and try to get blessed that way. The motive of it has to be a merciful attitude towards the poor, not a way of making money. Chapter 28 and verse 27, very simply, He that giveth unto the poor shall not lack. That's what it says in the first part. He that giveth unto the poor shall not lack. All of you here this morning, think of all the poor people. We're going to have a chance in the next whatever amount of time we're on this earth, to help lift them up and give them a little cheer, make life a little easier for them, give them something a little extra to eat, maybe an opportunity to do something they haven't been able to do. And you're going to help them. He said, you'll be blessed. Didn't he? Proverbs twenty-eight seventeen: He that giveth unto the poor shall be blessed. 
Psalm 41 begins by, Blessed is he that considereth the poor, the Lord will deliver him. And then mentions four or five more things that God will do because you consider the poor. One of the things he will do is to heal you, raise you up from the bed of affliction. Psalm 71. And the rich young ruler, remember him, came to Jesus and said, What must I do to have eternal life? And Jesus said, what saith the law? And he said, well, you should do this, thou shalt not. And he mentioned all these things. He said, all these have I kept from my youth. And Jesus said to this rich man, he said, one thing you lack. You got one area in your life that concerns money that will prevent you from following me. Now, you think you will right now because you're all gung-ho about serving God, but one area will stop you in your tracks and draw you back if you don't deal with it because that's an area of bondage. What is it, Lord? And he didn't say all of that. I said that. He said, sell all that you have. In Luke 12, he said, sell all that you have and distribute it to the poor. And he said, and then you'll have eternal life. Wow, he didn't tell all rich men to do that. He did this guy. Because, again, this was a thing in his life, his relationship with money and success will eventually terminate his relationship with God and giving. And the only way he's going to really get free is to take all that he has and sell it and distribute it to the poor. That might take him a month. He's got to find out who really is poor, where they really are, and he has to go and give all that he worked hard for, all that he got, and he gives it to the poor until he has nothing. And Jesus said, then you come and follow me. You know what the Bible says happened to him? He went away sorrowful. Don't tell me that in order to serve the Lord, I have to give everything away. In this man's case, he did. He asked that of him, didn't he? The rich man couldn't follow Jesus on his terms. He couldn't keep everything he had and follow Jesus because he would have had better ideas on how to do things than Jesus would because he had the resources. Jesus had to appoint one of the guys that followed him as the guy who carried the money. Remember that guy's name? The Bible said he had the bag. Jesus asked 12 men to quit what they were doing, quit making money the way you do it, and follow me. Not your boats, not your tax collecting, not your work and your hobby, whatever you're doing. I want you to follow me. None of them said, all we're doing is walking around Galilee. They followed him. They weren't working. How did they get their needs met? How did disciples get their needs met? I wonder if Jesus took care of them. He had a bag. Judas dipped into it a little bit too much, but they had a bag. Where they get the money for that? I don't know. But Jesus took care of them. Nobody walking with Jesus said, I can't afford to do this no more. I'm losing money following you. People say that today. But nobody who followed him then said that. So, in closing, what do we do? We have to have a heart to give. It must be a willing heart. It's not how much. It's as every man purposeth in his heart. You sow light, you reap light. You sow much, you get much. But you're not sowing in order to get. You're sowing because it's the inspiration that God puts in your heart, whatever he wants. 
And some of you that put in the offering, you put a little envelope, put money in it for various people in the church here. I'm the mailman. I tell them you got some mail back there. Don't you know you're helping make life a little better, a little easier, a little brighter for some people? You're not around them enough to know what their needs are, but I know this about them, most of the ones that receive, they're grateful. They're extremely grateful, and it comes in handy. Nobody's ever yet received a gift. Say, I don't want that. Throw it down, walk away. No, because one thing that we have learned, I hope we have learned in 30 years, is to be thankful. To appreciate what God does for us. And for that thankfulness to be shown back to God, I am thankful to you, and I want in this way to show you how thankful I am. One last verse. We'll close. Malachi 3.10, I said we would end there. You don't really have to turn to it. He said, bring all the tithes into the storehouse and prove me. What does that mean? Prove me. Did God invite them to prove him? Did he? Could the same thing be said this morning to you here? Maybe some of you here haven't been giving the way you really should. You get convicted about it. You know that I'm not doing as well as I probably could. God doesn't ask you again to give what you don't have, but it's according to what you do have. But if you haven't been giving much because you're talking yourself out of it, maybe he's talking to you this morning and saying, why don't you prove me? Why don't you do it my way? And see if I won't open the windows of heaven for you and pour a blessing out on you and your family that you've been missing all these years. Prove me. Prove me. Don't be stingy and tight and always trying to hoard it in and griping and complaining. The people that I found who complain about money are not the people who give. It's the people who have an opinion. People who give money don't complain about what you do with it. It's that 20% 20% of that 50% that don't give that make all the noise. But the people who do give and are joyfully give and glad to give, God loves a cheerful giver. And the people who do that, they're not the ones that complain about it. They're blessed. Like one fellow said years ago, when I let go of it, it's between you and God after that. I'm done. He'll bless me. I don't know what he's going to do about you. It depends on what you do with it. And I know what it's like to take an offering when you're alone and lay hands on it and say, I give you thanks, Lord God, for all of this. Some who gave, gave out of need. Some gave because they had plenty to give. But I ask you to bless them all. And I know he does. I know he does. I know that he does. Bow your head with me. Heavenly Father, in the name of Jesus, on this subject, Lord, you promise so many things in so many ways. So many needs are met because people give. So many people do well because they give. Our pockets no longer have holes in them. Our cisterns no longer leak. For you bless us. May we always have a heart to give, Lord, as a church, as individuals. May our young folks learn this very young. To give back to God in thanksgiving and appreciation for the work that he gave you. And I ask you to bless these folks, bless what they do, the words you put in their heart, that they might live by it and be blessed. As we approach a communion table this morning, our greatest thanks to you, O God, is for what this means this morning. We have been redeemed by the blood of the Lamb.
In his body he has bore all of our diseases and our sicknesses, and by those stripes we're healed. What a blessing and what a gift. Lord, it's all worthy of us giving to you ourselves. We can give no more. Help us reflect on these things that Jesus has done for us. I ask in Jesus' name, amen. His love, fast as the ocean, loving kindness as a flood, where the prince of life our ransom shed for us his precious blood, who his love will not remember, who can cease to sing his praise. He can never be forgotten Throughout heaven's eternal days On the mount of crucifixion Fountains open deep and wide Through the floodgates of God's mercy Gracious time, grace and love like mighty rivers poured incessant from above, and heaven's peace and perfect justice kissed a guilty world in love. Let me Thank you. 
the mount of crucifixion, fountains open deep and wide, through the floodgates of God's mercy, flowed a vast and gracious tide, grace and love like mighty rivers, poured and and from above and heaven's peace and perfect justice kissed again